Oh, John. Morning, everyone. I say it again. I'm going to say it every time we meet. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> Thank you for your passion to sit under the administration of the Word of God. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. I know that just like good parents, we are so excited and grateful when our children do what we know is good for them. Isn't that the way we feel? We say, thank God they're doing what is good for them. And what is good for us is what we're doing this morning. This morning we're going to spend this Sunday and next Sunday, and next Sunday we'll conclude the series. It really will unless the Lord kind of does something extraordinary. So let me let you know where we're going and what we're doing. This Sunday and next Sunday we're going to look at the book of Hebrews as an overview to show that all that we've been talking about, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the festivals, was a shadow of that which is to come, was an impermanent work that accomplished God's will as an interim until the permanent work occurred to accomplish God's work forever. Okay, so we'll look at Hebrews to determine that. <clears throat> so this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll divide Hebrews, if you would, in half. And I don't mean in half numbers of pages. Then on the 29th, we're going to not have a class. We're going to have a time of prayer. So for those of you who come extra early in the morning, certainly you're allowed and welcome to do that. But the class will be a time of prayer. Hopefully you will come Hopefully we won't demean prayer to say, well, it's not the word, therefore prayer. I, I don't think that is spiritually healthy. And then I'm excited to, that this is happening on December 3rd and 10th. I think those are the correct dates. Those are the two, first two Sundays in December. I think those are the correct dates. We'll have a guest speaker here who will give us a little more detail in some of the activities of Exodus 3 and 4 on the first Sunday and then give us a lot more detail than what we covered with the altar of incense. Remember the altar of incense in the holy place inside the tabernacle. And so there was something about that incense that it is specifically important for us to know and understand concerning the, uh, the person and work of Christ, the issue of prayer. And so Frank Loria will be teaching those two classes the first two Sundays in December. I don't think he told his wife. That's why uh, Annette just fell to the ground. And so Frank will be bringing a certain aroma to the class. It's not my fault. He's Italian, but this is what happens. Uh, and then on the, the, what are the other two Sundays? The uh, 17th and 24th or 3rd or whatever it is, uh, Jason will be sharing with us concerning the first and second advents of Christ. Now, I think he's going to do it for two Sundays, possibly one, but at least the third Sunday will be Jason coming in and sharing that. Uh, and then what we'll do after he's finished his sharing, we will begin School of the Word. 
whether the second or third Sunday in January, I'm not quite sure yet. We need to look at the schedule, make sure we're not conflicting with the men's retreat and they're started up one Sunday, stopping another Sunday, whatever. And the class will be, be um, Christ, prophet, priest, and king. I think that's where we're going. That's where I'm anticipating. That's what I'm looking forward to doing. That's what I'm working on. But again, sometimes the Holy Spirit interrupts things. He just really doesn't ask for my permission and doesn't quite understand the necessity of us doing it my way. So you'll be praying about that, hopefully. So again, thank you for being here. So let's get into the word this morning. <clears throat> you know, from the beginning of this study, and that was about 20 weeks ago, I think, 20, 21 weeks ago, although your lesson may say 19, a couple of the weeks I just didn't change the number on it. We just kind of went on and finished what we didn't finish the previous week. From the beginning of the study, what we said is that the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle, its structure, its materials, its layout, the garments and function of the high priest, especially the high priest, and the seven festivals, all of this collectively all of this as a unit, a comprehensive revelation, function as types and shadows. All of it was about, all of it comprehensively was about one man and his ministry. Okay, all of that comprehensively was about one man and his ministry in whom and by whom all of these types would be Fulfilled. Remember in Colossians, the word says that Christ is the fulfillment or the substance, your Bible may say, is the completion, is the gathering up of everything that has come before in the Old Testament, everything that has come from the very beginning all the way through of all the work and will of God in the Old Testament has been gathered up and has been completely fulfilled in one man and in the ministry of of this one man. Now that's a, an incredible and an astounding statement and understanding, but that's how the Bible is to be understood and is to be looked at and studied. Anytime we study the Old Testament or the New Testament or however we do our study, we must do it with this comprehensive understanding that this is one word of God and that he begins in the beginning with his purpose. The purpose is forfeited for a period of time because of sin. And then God immediately, never having, what am I going to do? Never having been put up, but always, already prepared, moves again to restore that forfeited or fallen purpose to bring back his creation, his purpose, mankind, this whole thing that we're a part of right now, not only to his original purpose, but to transcend it past the garden of, uh, garden of Eden into the garden of the world, the new heavens and the new earth. And he does all of that in one man and in the one ministry of that one man. So all of this is affirmed throughout the New Testament. You see it peppered in the New Testament. So when you read the New Testament, let's start reading it <clears throat> with a view that everything that we have in the New Testament is a collecting of all of that which is of the old and is now being realized in fullness. So let's not just read the New Testament as, okay, now let's see what we're going to see in Jesus today. You know, let's read it with this awe understanding that all that God has been doing and saying and promising, all of the works of God in the Old Testament are now being collected and fulfilled in this New Testament, in one man 
and in that one man's ministry. Amen? Because I think what that's going to do is enlarge our faith, enlarge our understanding of the knowledge of God and the uh, 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 understanding of how he does things and who he is and where we are going and why we're experiencing what we're experiencing as we take the whole word of God from Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation 22 and see this is a revelation of God. All of this is affirmed throughout the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews, especially, especially the book of Hebrews, summarizes the various Old Testament passages that pertain to the high priest and his function in relation to the fulfillment in the work and person of Christ. So the book of Hebrews, which is really more than a book, is kind of like a speech. It's like a speech. It's not really a letter. It's a man standing, if you would, and speaking this. This is what it sounds like to us, although it was written down. This letter of Hebrews. Why is this the subject of the letter of Hebrews? Hebrews deals with specifically the issues of what happened in the Old Testament as a type and a shadow that is fulfilled in the new. And so he compares and contrasts the old and the new. Why does he do this? Well, this book, again, which is more of a speech, this book of Hebrews was written to a church that contained many Jewish believers. We know that because of all the references to Judaism in the book. To many Jewish believers who were being tempted to abandon Christ and to return to Judaism. Why? Thinking that such a return to Judaism would ameliorate the persecution that they were experiencing as Christians. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Bam! Are you a Christian? Yeah. Bam! They were experiencing this. You see, what we, what, what we are experiencing and seeing on television today is nothing new. It's just new because it's closer to us. This is happening everywhere around the world, and it's been happening. This has been happening since the resurrection of Jesus and since the birth of the church. People have, be, have been persecuted and assassinated and whatever as a result of their faith. Everything that we see of ISIS, everything that we see of ISIS, although they don't understand this, is the persecution of Satan against the purposes of God. Everything. Everything. That's what this whole thing is about. This is not about one way of life, the, the eastern side and the west. This is about Satan opposing the purposes of God. And so what we see in Hebrews, the church is undergoing these terrible persecutions. And the persecution basically is against the church. So some in the church who are Jewish believers are realizing, wait a minute. I didn't have this much of a problem before I was born again. Does that say something to any of us about our own personal lives? I didn't have this much of a difficulty when I was walking in the world. I wonder if I did the right thing. I wonder if I went back. Now, hopefully that's not a temptation to us, but it was to them. If we go back to Judaism, maybe we won't get the persecution. Maybe they'll leave us alone. Or at least maybe they won't attack us nearly as much as they do because we're Christians. This is the problem that the author of Hebrews is addressing. The author's identity, 
And we're going, I'm going to call him the Holy Spirit because the author's identity is not given in this book, and I think that's a very wise thing. We won't go into the reason I think that. The author's argument can be summarized succinctly. To abandon Christ is to leave him who has fulfilled all that was required for our salvation. To abandon Christ is to abandon him who has in himself and by himself has fulfilled all that is required for our salvation. To leave Christ is to leave our fellowship and relationship with God and to go back into darkness, go back into condemnation, to go back into a life that was dominated and controlled by evil. That's what he's dealing with here. If you're going to abandon Christ, this is where you're going. To abandon Christ is to return to a sacrificial system, especially for the Jews. They were returning or being tempted to return to a sacrificial system that no longer represented God's way of salvation. Why? Because it was fulfilled in Christ. People ask me, what about Judaism today? Is God in Judaism today? Well, he is in Judaism, but not the same way as he used to be. He's in Judaism because when they read the word, the presence of God is in the word, and he still will use the word to convict and save people. But he's not in Judaism as a way of salvation. He's not in Judaism anymore. When Jesus says it is finished, all of Judaism as God's way of representing himself to the world was finished. It was finished. It was put away. The door closed on Judaism as God's means of self-revelation because it was fulfilled in Christ. It is good to study Judaism. It is good to study the Old Testament. I mean, I would rather study the Old Testament than anything else. But it is not wise to see the Old Testament as God's way today of saving us through the system that he has in the Old Testament. So if they go back to it, what are they going back to? That which has been nullified, that which has been overcome, that which has been fulfilled in another way or in another person. You see, to return to Judaism was a return to the old covenant. You're going to see a lot of in the New Testament, old and new covenant, was a return to the old covenant which had no power, no power to save since it had been set aside by the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ. Okay? That's what's happening. You're returning to that which was for them, and it is no longer viable for us today. So from promise to fulfillment, let's talk about the Old Covenant just for a moment. From the fall onward, remember when the fall occurred? What verse tells us when the fall occurred? Genesis 3, verse 6. What does it say? And he ate. Come on, Kyle, come on, come on. When did the fall happen? Not when she and Satan were talking together. When he ate. So when Paul says the disobedience of one man, what verse is Paul thinking about? When, and Adam ate. That's the disobedience that brought it all down, okay? That's the disobedience. There was a purposeful laying aside of what God's will was to take up the will of man. So from the fall onward, God had promised to fulfill his original intention in another man. Remember Galatians 15, the seed of the woman. 
Remember the seed of the woman in Galatians 15. There's a promise. There's someone coming that is having, going to experience enmity. I'm going to put enmity, en, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And Satan is going to bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush his or Satan's head. It's a picture of the coming Messiah, the one who would fulfill, the one who would destroy Satan's authority at the cross. Genesis 3.15. And he would do what Adam failed to do, thus establishing an everlasting fellowship between God and man. Since Adam had abandoned the covenant, and it's interesting, covenant isn't mentioned until Genesis chapter 6 with Noah. But we know that Adam and God entered in a covenant. God entered in a covenant with Adam because of Hosea 6, 7. So you can read that on your own. Since Adam had abandoned the covenant, how did he abandon the covenant? Because of sin. Because he had abandoned the covenant that God had created to be the means through which he would have fellowship with humanity. And one day I think we're going to have to do a study of what covenant is and that whole issue of the Old Testament, New Testament covenant. But the covenant was God's means of creating and maintaining fellowship and relationship with humanity. Covenant is that means in which God, which God uses just to create and maintain and develop the relationship that he has with man. That's what the covenant is all about. There are many issues about it, but that's essentially what it's for. <clears throat> and so Adam abandoned that. So God said, I will send another man who will fulfill all my righteousness, who will do all that is required, thus establishing a new and everlasting covenant between God and man. So God begins to work, begins to work. Right after Genesis 3, 6, God begins to work. Adam and Eve don't die. Remember, they're still alive. God hasn't killed them. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, they died spiritually, but they didn't die physically, and God could have taken them out. He didn't. Why? Because to have done so, would have, he would have lost his purpose. He would have lost the day, and God isn't going to lose the day. He's going to succeed in his purpose. He begins to move forward. Now, I don't, want to, I, I don't want to teach covenant here. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So the covenant that the Lord had established with Israel at, well, let me say it this way. Adam and Eve, they fall. God begins to move again with, in relationship with these people, this humanity. And as he moves forward, we see glimpses of covenant. They build an altar. They sacrifice an animal. You remember in chapter 4, Abel and Cain, Abel does the, uh, the blood sacrificing thing. Cain doesn't. Cain's offering is rejected. Abel's is accepted. Cain kills Abel. Remember, Seth comes in. And so we're moving forward. We're moving forward. He establishes, God establishes a covenant with Noah, taking him out of the wicked world, putting him in an ark of safety. The ark of safety is lashed and beaten, and, and, and um, the fury of God comes against the ark. What a picture of Christ. We're in this ark of safety. And the people who are in the ark are saved alive. We are saved alive because the ark of safety at the cross receives a battering and the, you know, attack of the wrath of God. And we are in him and we are saved alive. And so the ark comes up, remember, and et cetera, et cetera. We see the ark raised up. Jesus is raised. The people come forth into a new life. Covenant is established. God creates his covenant, establishes his covenant with Abraham. Remember in Genesis chapter 12 and several other places in Genesis, those first few chapters, God is establishing covenant. And he's moving forward. 450 years or so later, Israel is 
released from captivity, remember, under a man named Moses. And they travel into the desert. They travel into the wilderness. And a couple of weeks after they cross that Red Sea, they come to Sinai, to the mountain of Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, the mountain of God, the mountain of God. And at the mountain of God, God sets the people down, the plain before him, and God literally and visibly, if you would, comes down and speaks to these people, and they are scared to death. But you remember the lightning and the thundering and all of that kind of thing. God comes down and he establishes a covenant with these people that is a codification of what he's already said in Abraham. Hey, I'm going to do it this way, but we're going to do it through the parameters and through the revelation of the law. And we're going to provide my people with the ability, I'm sorry, with the protection of the law and going to tell them how to live and what to do so they're not just gone in and live helter-skelter out there in the world and be destroyed. So the law is given as God's great means of ministering life to his people. And so the covenant that the Lord established with Israel at Horeb was a temporary covenant. It was given not as an everlasting covenant. It was only given until a new covenant would be established. Why? Because we cannot be God's people permanently based on a law that we're called to obey, which we cannot obey. Do you see it? And so it would be replaced by an everlasting covenant. The Lord promised in Isaiah 61.8, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. A day is coming. A day is coming. This is what you have today. It's temporary, but it's to look forward to another day. What we are doing today anticipates and guarantees another day. So Israel, hopefully, if they were reading the scriptures right and trusting God rightly, they are looking forward to another day. What we have today is sufficient for us today. It will do today the work that God needs it and wants it to do. But this isn't the fullness of what is coming. The fullness is over there. And so so even though we're being ministered to today and we will be saved this day because we're having faith in the God who keeps covenant through his work of sacrifice, we will trust God and we will be saved on that basis. But there is coming a better covenant, a new covenant. It's coming. It's coming. So you remember in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, here's what the Lord says through Jeremiah. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming. Now this is right at the end of the history of Judah before they're going into the Babylonian captivity. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's knocking on the door. Let me in, let me in. You know, he's there knocking on the door. And Jeremiah, a little bit before this, is giving this proclamation by God. The Lord is saying, look, you're going into captivity. The nation's going to be utterly destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. I'm tearing down the temple. It's going to look like all my promises have failed. It's going to look like everything's over. There's no hope. It's going to be the darkest 70 years of Israel's history to that point. Everything's finished. And so the Lord says, let me prepare you for this. And he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. They see, but. A new covenant, but, meaning it's not like the old covenant. This is going to be a different covenant. The old covenant was based in the law that needed to be kept 
and its inability to give us the power to keep it. Therefore, the sacrificial system was necessary to cleanse us from sin, to deal with our failures in order to be maintained as God's people. But I will put my law within them. Someone said the other day, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Yes, we are. But the law is still the central heartbeat of the Christian's life. Now the law isn't out there for me to try to maintain it through whatever. Now the law is in me through my cooperation with the living law himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the living law of God in me. Amen? And that's what we are keeping through relationship. I will put my law in them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, look at that. I will remember their sin no more. People say when God forgives, he forgets. That's crazy. That's just goofy. How can God evaluate us and judge us on the day of judgment? How can we come before the judgment seat of Christ and God deal with the the sin in our lives and the failure in our lives. He has to know these things. But here's what he says. I will remember your sin. No more against you. Oh, oh, I will remember your sin. Every word that we ever say, every thought that we ever think, every activity that we ever went to, everything that we all wanted to do and we didn't do, everything is in God's memory. The difference is in Christ. It won't be afflicted against us. The wrath won't come against us because it's all been consumed in Christ. Amen? It's all been consumed. Certainly God remembers our sin, but he doesn't use it against us anymore in a condemning way. Remember in Ezekiel 36, I won't read that, but that's a restatement, if you would, or an amplification, an explanation of what God would do. Sometime later, after Israel goes into the bondage of Babylon, Ezekiel's sitting there, remember, at the river, and the Lord appears to him and begins to give him these revelations over a period of years. And in chapter 36, he starts talking about how in the latter days I'm going to do this work. I'm going to be their God. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to take out the old stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. And they're going to have my law within them. I'm going to put my spirit inside of them to cause them to obey my word and to walk with me. So you see, there's a new day coming. And the establishment and the permanence of this new day will work in us because of the Holy Spirit. But someone has to pay the price so that day can come. Someone has to pay the price so that day can come. In this treatise, this Hebrews, the author strives through the copious use, the many use, copious means many, use of Old Testament scriptures to prove that Christ, our high priest, is superior in his person and in his work. He is superior in his person and he is superior in his work to the priests of the old covenant. So let's talk about why the new covenant is superior. Why is the new covenant that which transcends and overcomes and does away with in a fulfilling way? See, we have to be careful. The new covenant doesn't do away with the old covenant. It fulfills the old covenant. It takes what the old covenant was wanting to say and was saying in parts and pieces, and it 
fulfills it. It doesn't say, okay, sacrificial system, sacrifices were never any good. That was never any good. Praise and worship of God coming into the No, we're doing away with all that. We have a totally new thing. No, it's a fulfillment. It's a fulfillment. It's an abolishment of everything that is fulfilled in Christ, but it is a statement that that which was to be fulfilled was good at that time, fulfilled in Christ now. Christ is superior. Well, let's, first of all, Christ is superior to the old covenant in his person. Do you have in there chapter 1, 1 before 16? Okay, that's how we, I'm going to divide Hebrews. He's superior in his person and he is superior in his work. That's how we're going to divide the whole book of Hebrews. This morning we'll deal with the person in this last few minutes. Str- simply put, why is the new covenant superior to the old? Because of the man who came to fulfill it. The new covenant is superior for one reason only, because Christ. He is superior because he's the son of God and he is the son of man. The new covenant is superior because of the person of Christ, because of his personhood. His personhood as the divine son of God and his personhood as the son of man in the incarnation. Both of these are equally necessary for the fulfillment being Christ, uh, of Christ being superior. Both of them are needed in order for Christianity to be a viable relationship with God. So first of all, Christ is superior because he is the son of God. Chapter 1, 1 to verse 14. Verse 1, the author begins by telling us that God spoke to his people through types. Remember the types and shadows and various means and various locations and various ways until the coming of his son. Here's what Hebrews 1, 1 says. In the past, what is that? Old Testament. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Types and shadows. Tabernacles, priesthood, sacrifices, feasts. God spoke to the people that way. But in these last days, the last days in the Bible are the days after the resurrection of Jesus in a general way, the last days. We are living in the last days. But in these last days, God has spoken to us in Son. Your Bible may say in his Son or by his Son. The word is E-N in the Greek. It means in, in the location of or by the instrumentality of his son. So I just say this is where it should be in Greek. I'm in the English if it's going to translate the Greek properly. God has spoken to us in son. Jesus is God's literal language to us. What language am I speaking to you today? English. English is my language to you. We converse in English. Most of us do at least. We converse in English. God converses with us. His language to us is son. It is son. He is called the word of God. The author's burden is to show that our high priest is superior to the Old Testament high priests. Why? Because our high priest is none other than the divine and eternal son of God. This is what makes Jesus' high priestly work superior and overcoming and fulfilling all of the Old Testament priesthood. In verses 2 and 3, he lists some of the credentials of our high priest. 
Verse 2, he is the heir and creator. In verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact image of the nature of God. Did you see that? The exact image. What does that bring to your mind? What image or what remembrance or what scripture does that bring to your mind? Jesus is the exact image of the radiance of the glory of God. What verse are you thinking of? What verse? Genesis what? One twenty-six. Here we have the man who alone fulfills God's Genesis one twenty-six purpose for humanity. And where are we when Jesus fulfills that? We are where? In him. In him. Therefore, we in him, because of our location, God now sees us and declares that we now are the image of God. Not the exact image as the way the sun is, but we are now in the image of God as God's new humanity in Christ. So he is the exact image of the nature of God. He is the one who sustains all things, the one who purifies of sin, and the one who has sat down having completed the work of redeeming God's people. So in verses 2 and 3, Hebrews gives you, the author gives you a, 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 a picture, a painting, a swath, if you would, a large brush of who this son is, this son of God, this divine person. Now, why does everything about Christianity, why does everything depend upon the validity uh, I'm sorry, why does the validity of our salvation depend upon the deity of Jesus? What is the single most important thing that we have going for us as church? Jesus is divine. Why is Jesus' divinity always attacked? This is where the Jehovah's Witness attack. They attack the divinity of Jesus. The Mormons attack the divinity of Jesus. Jesus' divinity is always the place of attack against Christianity. Why does Islam say, you know, that Jesus is just a man and so on? Because Satan doesn't want people to understand, to believe that Jesus, this man, was the Son of God living in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's divine. For instance... I just listed a few things here for you. There's so much to talk about, you know, you had to say. Uh, Jesus' divinity reveals the nature and character of God. Remember what Jesus says to Philip? Philip says, hey, show us the Father. You're going away before you go. Show us the Father. What does Jesus say? Have I been with you this long, Philip? And you're asking me, show us the Father? What does he say? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But you see, that's, is that also true of us? Are people seeing the Father in us? When I am impatient, is the world seeing the Father in me? If I have a bad attitude, is the world seeing the Father in me? If I'm not being generous with God's gift, especially to in giving, is the world seeing the Father in me? Why were we saved? So the world would see the Father in us. Genesis 1, 26. Uh, let us make man in 
our image, according to our likeness, so that in them we may be seen and identified and experienced. So Jesus is telling Philip that the Father is fully seen in him as fully as God would do it in the revelation of a human being. And we are to be the same people that in us the world is seeing the Father. You know, the question for me this morning, question for you this morning is what? To what extent are they seeing the Father? And if they're not seeing the Father in some areas, why not? And what are we going to do about it? Amen? That's the issue you see with our obedience. Why am I called to obey God? Completely, explicitly. Why? Because Jesus came to do the will of the Father and he obeyed God completely, explicitly, comprehensively. And in doing so, he was revealing the Father. We would be the same way. This is who we're called to be. Jesus' divinity propitiates God's wrath. Remember, because of the divinity of Jesus, God pours on his Son the eternal consequences of sin. And Jesus averts the wrath of God for us because he takes it upon his own body and into his own soul. Jesus' divinity destroys the work of the devil. Remember in 1 John 3, 8, for the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, that he might, what, destroy the work of the devil. What work of the devil? Holding us in the captivity of sin and death. That work has been destroyed at the cross. Why could Jesus do it? He's the Son of God. A created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses have can't do that. He can't do it. Jesus' divinity breaks the authority of sin. When you read Romans 6, verses 2 to 6, you'll see the authority of sin over us is broken. We no longer, I, I tell people this, I told some people this in my um, office this week, I say it so often over and over again. Sin has no ability to make us sin. Satan has no ability to make us sin. All he can do is tempt us. All he can do is deceive and tell us lies. It is our choice to sin. No one, nothing on earth, if we're believers, and in heaven or in hell can make me as a believer to sin. Amen? So let's get that attitude in us. I don't anymore have to commit purposeful, known, planned sin. Don't have to do it. It's the issue of what brings us down in life. Oh, I know you have this and that and your mama and your grandma and your aunties and your sons and daughters and your employees or your husband and wife. Nobody, nobody. Satan walked in here, right here, and, and confronted us face to face. We are in Christ greater than he is. 1 John 4.4. 4. We don't have to sin anymore. We need to have an attitude like this. I've said this so many times. I told it to a particular couple this week. When you begin to be tempted, you see, Satan, all he can do is tempt you. All he can do is knock on your door, Gwen. You got to open the door. And if you don't open the door, brother, he ain't coming in because he doesn't have the power to kick the door down.
He doesn't have the key, Allie. Jesus has the key. But the door is locked on the inside. We're the only ones who can unlock that door. We're the only ones who can unlock that door to Satan's temptation. Remember that. You're the only one who can unlock the door to Satan's temptation. And if it's unlocked, he comes in, it's your fault. Oh, I pray for God to give me more strength. You don't need to pray for God to give you more strength. You just need to start doing what you need to do because God has told you, I've given you everything you need to do. Start doing it. So stop praying for strength and start obeying God. Amen? Amen. See, Satan wants to divert you. Pray for more strength. Pray for more strength. You're weak. You're weak. Yeah, we're weak. But my no against sin ain't weak. Amen. That isn't weak. That's the power of God. Satan's divinity results in the resurrection. I'm sorry, Jesus' divinity results in the resurrection. Because he was divine, he was raised from the dead. Jesus' divinity gives us eternal life. Remember John 17, too. I give them eternal life. You've given to me, I give them eternal life. Jesus' divinity establishes the church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. Jesus' divinity ensures his triumphant return with the church. He's coming back. And ISIS and anybody else, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. Because Jesus is divine, he's superior to the angels. As we go past in Hebrews, in verses 4 to 13, he's superior to the angels. Hebrews thought, the Jews thought the angels were, you know, pretty good beings, pretty strong beings, and we do too. But he is greater than the angels. And then secondly, not only is Jesus divine as his, sorry, not only is he superior in his divinity, he's also superior because he's the son of man. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, by the way, we're jumping like that because Hebrews begins to give you warnings. He's warning them, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, the author tells us that the son became incarnate. He became a man. You can read the verses for yourself. He became a man. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? Who, who is man? You made him superior, even over the angels. Well, this is a statement, most believe, of a double statement of humanity, but also of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. He becomes a man. He is born into the world in the womb of a woman, and he takes on the humanity of this man named Jesus. Why? Because, you see, God created humanity for fellowship. But when a man disobeyed, another man had to redeem humanity from the dis- consequences of that disobedience in order for God's purpose to be fulfilled. An angel could not do it. Another man had to come and walk obedient to show that God has a man and only a divine man can do this. His ability has to be because of his divinity, Christ in Jesus, and also his power to take on our sin has to be as a result of a divine son of God taking on the humanity of man. So Jesus can walk as a man obediently and then go to the cross as a man and take the severe as a severity of the wrath of God in his own body on our behalf as a man. So you see, it's required of him to be the divine son. It's also required of him to be the incarnate son. 
So listen to Romans 5, 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is the divine son, he is superior to Moses. And that concludes this section. He's superior to Moses. Verses 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And look at this. Therefore, holy brethren, he's talking to believers. It's amazing what commentators want to do. They want to do this. He's not talking to believers. He is talking. To, oh, he is because, because he's given us warnings. And certainly, oh, come on. These are real, genuine believers who are being tempted to leave Christ. And these are real warnings that if you leave Christ, you go back into a condemned situation. God isn't winking his eye. Guess what? If you leave, you're not going. But I'm going to tell you anyway, just to kind of shake it. It's real. Don't abandon Christ. Say, oh, can we abandon Christ? Jesus says, trust me to the end. Can we lose our salvation? Jesus says, trust me to the end. Well, what happens if somebody doesn't do, uh, live right? And what happens if he dies if he doesn't live? Trust me to the end. All those other questions he doesn't deal with. He just says what? Trust me. Obey me how long? To the end. What about people, Christians who commit suicide? Trust me to the end. Trust me. Therefore, holy brethren, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. Now, here's the reason why Jesus is superior to Moses. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted more worthy, or worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? As much more glory as the builder, Moses is the builder of the house, has more honor than the house itself. Moses built the house. Remember the house, the tabernacle? Remember Moses' instructions? Jesus is greater than Moses. Why is he bringing this up? Because these Jewish people want to return to the law of Moses and the sacrificial system that Moses gave them. And he said, as great as Moses is, Moses was the architect, a builder of the house. But this one, Jesus, is the house. That which Moses was building in the wilderness was a revelation of him who would come to be the house itself. See, don't go back to the builder. Stay in the house himself. Don't abandon Christ. Moses was the builder. Jesus is the house itself. So we deal, dealt today with why is the new covenant superior, and we'll go get into covenant next week, use that language. Why is Christianity fulfillment? Because Jesus has come as the Son of God, incarnate in the body and the humanity of Jesus, the Son of Man, and he's done the whole work that the Old Testament sacrificial system demanded, and he's fulfilled it all. How do I know he fulfilled it all? How do you know? How do you know? Where's the proof he fulfilled it all? Where's the proof? Resurrection. Resurrection. How do I know God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself? The resurrection. <clears throat> How do I know God loves me? The resurrection. How do I know the Holy Spirit is given to us? The resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, we have nothing. Let your arguments and your presentation to people be about a lot of things in the gospel. 
but the resurrection is the quintessential proof and demonstration that it's all true. Amen? Next week. See you next week. You, by the way, read the rest of uh, Hebrews. Thank you. <laughs> Hebrews 4.14 to the end. 